Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this is another bonus episode of the podcast made possible by the largesse of my patrons over at www.patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. These wonderful people support my nonsense financially, and in doing so, everyone listening benefits from regular bonus content. This episode, I have the pleasure of thanking some new patrons, Keith, a brand new patron, and Ben, a returning patron. Thank you both so much for your support. It makes everything I do possible. In addition to my thanks, all patrons get sent a collection of gaming things, what I done wrote, and access to my Patreon blog, where I'm posting regular development updates on the gamebook I'm currently writing. If you want to find out how I go about the process of designing a gamebook, then a single English pound, or local equivalent, a month is all it takes. I had planned this episode to cover a gamebook written by one of my patrons. It turns out on closer inspection that the book is absolutely huge, and in order to give it the attention it deserves, I'm going to have to work on it over a longer period than usual. I remember how difficult it was to get through Destiny Quest in the time I would usually allocate for a bonus episode to go up, so this time I'm going to give myself a bit longer. So instead of that, which is hopefully going to be coming next month, we're going to be looking at a book suggested by a different patron, Tom, a game designer and one of the co-hosts of the excellent Fear of a Black Dragon podcast. When I mentioned that the framing device for my new game book was kind of a science fiction game show, he pointed me towards this book, The Crystal Maze by Dave Morris and Jamie Thompson, released in 1991 to tie into the game show of the same name. The Crystal Maze is a British institution by this point, having been relaunched several times in its history, most recently hosted by comedian and actor Richard Ayoade, but best known in its original incarnation when it was hosted by Rocky Horror Picture Show creator Richard O'Brien. In The Crystal Maze, teams of players compete in a series of games across four exotically themed zones, in an experience that combines game show elements with very light role-playing elements. Every game they play has the potential to win a crystal, but failure to exit the room before the time limit expires causes the player to be locked in, and thus unavailable for future games. Players can be bought back at the cost of one of their precious crystals, and in the finale, the surviving players are herded into a giant glass crystal equipped with underfloor fans. Gold and silver tokens are released to be blown hither and thither by the fans. Every crystal gives the team five whole seconds to grab as many gold tokens as they can, with any silver tokens accidentally captured being deducted from their final tally. Get enough gold tokens and the team might win a wine tasting course, or a couple of nights at a mid-priced hotel in the English countryside. It was incredibly difficult to actually win the largely rubbish prizes, which somehow added to the appeal. O'Brien made the show. He would make waspish asides to the camera about the team's performance and constantly improvise strange lore that suggested he actually lived in the crystal maze with his mother. It was a deeply odd but very enjoyable time, and these days it exists almost entirely as a team-building day out for corporate types with enough money to relive the 90s. This might be the first gamebook I've covered where you can literally pay 80 quid to have the experience the gamebook is trying to convey. 
Yes, for 80 quid a head, you two can run around the Crystal Maze sets doing exactly the same thing that the TV contestants did while being hectored by an out-of-work actor. Jamie Thompson and Dave Morris are no strangers to the podcast. Dave Morris has contributed game books across many different genres and licensed properties, while Jamie Thompson, along with Mark Smith, contributed two fighting fantasy books that we've already covered, Talisman of Death and Sword of the Samurai. Later on, Morris and Thompson will team up for book 43, Keep of the Lich Lord. They are an archetypal safe pair of hands for this kind of book and I'm very curious to see how they go about transferring a kitsch 90s game show with a very very slight LARP vibe into a game book format. There is artwork but no illustrator is listed anywhere that I can see. The art style looks pretty familiar to me and I think it might be Bob Harvey which would make sense since he worked with both Morris and Thompson on various projects. With the preamble out of the way, let's look at how the Crystal Maze plays. In the Crystal Maze, you have a team of four. Each of your team members has three stats, strength, dexterity, and intelligence. Uh, and we're told that, as you will see from the adventure sheet, three of your team members are specialists, having a score of nine in one attribute and six in the others. And the fourth team member is an all-rounder, having the same score of seven in each attribute. Uh, if you actually go and look at the Crystal Maze adventure sheet, you will note that no strength, dexterity or intelligence scores are listed for any of the team members. Fortunately, there's enough information to allow you to assume that you have a strength specialist, a dexterity specialist and an intelligence specialist. Although it would be theoretically possible to just have three strength specialists if you go purely from the wording of the rule provided in the text. But I'm going to assume that they were sensible and that you get one specialist for each stat. Uh, each team member can carry a single item, so you can have up to four items at any one time. And in order to make use of the attributes, you roll 2d6 and a roll of equal or less than the attribute score indicates success, with a higher roll being a failure. There are four types of game, physical, mental, skill and mystery, and that is very much transferred from the TV show. Uh, there's an intriguing hint where the rules say, like the television show, The Crystal Maze Gamebook takes your team through four games in each zone, with the exception of the Aztec zone, which is slightly different, so that's exciting. Uh, usually only one team member will actually undertake the game and you get to choose who it is and there are, as always, crystals up for grabs. If all of your team get imprisoned at any point, your adventure ends immediately in failure. So with all of the rules broadly delineated, let's dive into the Crystal Maze. Introduction it is the year 2090. The most popular Holovision series of the late 21st century is The Crystal Maze. Teams of four contestants are given the opportunity to enter different time zones in their search for crystals that will win them time in the Crystal Dome at the end. In other respects, the programme has come a long way from its origins as a 20th century television show, making full use of the advances in technology. 
The time zones are highly realistic, being simulated by means of holograms, animatronic robots and computer graphics, and the host who conducts the contestants through the four zones is the latest in artificial intelligence, the amazingly lifelike android Rob9000. So Rob for Richard O'Brien. One. You are met at the entrance to the crystal maze by Rob9000, the uncannily lifelike android who is to act as your host and guide. He favours you each with a broad smile as he shakes your hand, but he also warns you that he is programmed for a certain mercilessness behind the facade of charm. After all, you'd hardly want things to be too easy, would you? He says. That wouldn't make for enjoyable viewing. I will give you the odd clue now and then. To start with, which zone would you like to enter first? They all have crystals aplenty, just waiting to be won. I don't necessarily recommend visiting the zones in chronological order, by the way. In fact, quite the reverse. So, we are given a choice of the medieval zone, the Aztec zone, the futuristic zone, and the industrial zone. So, the original set of zones, the zones themselves actually changed a bit over the course of the show's run, um, with the industrial zone being replaced at some point by an underwater zone. I think there was a, another change later after I'd stopped watching. Well, he's suggested that we go in reverse chronological order, so let's start off with the futuristic zone. Rob leads you through a succession of corridors that open out onto the surface of the crystal maze. Nearby, resting on a landing pad, is an interplanetary shuttle, a large 12-seater rocket ship. Oh, I should say that I have given my team a set of very heroic-sounding names. So my strength specialist is called Dropsy Bling Bling. My dexterity specialist is Tutankhamun O Wetwipe. My intelligence specialist is Velocity Backgammon. And my all-rounder is Piebald Oyster Chucker. We shall take a trip up to the futuristic zone. It is set in a huge starship, the Star Crystal, which is in an orbit around this planet, explains Rob. And there is a picture of the shuttle and the landing bay. And in the distance, you can make out what I think is the space station we will be going towards. It's pretty fair work. Yeah, um, there's this weird hint of the Ford Capri somehow about the space shuttle. And some of the perspective lines are less than perfectly aligned, shall we say. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Bob Harvey was working very quickly for a very small paycheck on this occasion. If indeed it is Bob Harvey who did the artwork. You enter the shuttle through a door set in the nose and strap yourself into the acceleration couches. Some hours later, after a gruelling blast-off that thrusts you skyward out of Earth's gravity well, you see the huge metal structure that is the Star Crystal. Hanging majestically in space, the Star Crystal is a vast dome of metal and glass, glittering in light reflected from the sun. Below you, awesome in its beauty, planet Earth slowly turns. The shuttle pilot takes you in a speeding arc towards the underside of the huge spaceship. As you close, you can begin to make out myriad gantries, sentry equipment, weapon pods and all manner of other unknowable devices that litter the hull of the star crystal. Interesting to note that in the future, game show venues will be heavily armed. 
Some areas are huge observation domes of one-way reflective glass. All you can see mirrored upon these are the endless stars or the crisp outlines of planet Earth. Soon a large section of the star crystal begins to slide open and your shuttle speeds into one of the many hangars. You are met by a team of techs and several maintenance droids who scurry about attending to the rocket ship. Here we are, the space station we use as the futuristic zone. Impressive, eh? says Rob. He leads you out of the hangar and into a briefing room nearby. It is time to begin the games. You are allowed to play only four games in the futuristic zone. Select from the choices below and mark them off as you do so. After each game, you will be sent back to this paragraph to choose another. If you've played four games already, turn to 300, which I guess is the exit. You may play any combination of game types you wish in any order, but no more than four. Once you have attempted four games here in the futuristic zone, then and only then you will be given an opportunity to release a team member who may be imprisoned at the cost of one time crystal per person. Don't forget to cross them off. And if you somehow contrive to lock all four members in their games, then the experience is over. So we have a choice of eight games and there are two each of skill, mental, physical and mystery. I think we will go not for the first skill game but for the second skill game as our opener and I will send Tutankhamun a wet wipe to play that particular game. I will say that the structure of this is incredibly amenable to a gamebook format and a very um, parsimonious gamebook format. There's very little wasted design space here, which is good given that we have only 320 paragraphs to play with. This game is fairly straightforward, says Rob. Follow me. He leads you to the lower decks of the Crystal Star through dark and gloomy corridors lined with strange apparatus, vast and brooding cargo holds, and busy control nodes where droids work unceasingly. Surprisingly well written this, I would say. You come to a door. Rob punches in the code and the door slides open. Inside is a bare steel chamber with a small transparent access hatch set in the far wall. Inside you can see a time crystal. Next to it is a numerical keypad. In you go, says Rob. Uh, we choose the character. Well, I've already said I'm going to send Tutankhamun a wet wipe in to play this one. So let's find out what this game involves. You step into a small steel chamber and the door slides shut. You hear Rob's little chuckle sound tinnily in your ear via speakers set into the ceiling. Rob then speaks. This puzzle's easy. I will ask you three questions in order. The answer to each is a planet of our own dear solar system. Once you think you've identified each planet correctly, you must match its orbit sequence to a number. So, if the answer is Earth, say, which it isn't, believe me, or is it, then the orbit number will be three, as Earth is the third planet from the Sun. If your answer is Pluto, it will be nine, as Pluto is ninth planet from the Sun. Ah, Pluto, still a planet in my heart. You must take the corresponding numbers in the order that the questions are given and type them into the numerical keypad beside that access hatch. So, you have two minutes to get the answer right. Good luck! Note down this paragraph number, 196. When you have arrived at a three-figure number in the order the questions are given, 
simply turn to that paragraph number. If you're right, the paragraph will start with the line, if you have just come from 196, then you have answered correctly. If not, you have turned to the wrong paragraph and have not solved the problem. If that happens, you can return to paragraph 196 and choose again or give up. You only have two chances to find the number. If you get it wrong on the second attempt, time will have run out. You can only give up after your first failed attempt and you can give up and be let out. So that's pretty complicated, but I think I grasp it. You cannot give up if you get the answer wrong twice. So uh, first question. My atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide mixed with nitrogen, oxygen, sulfur dioxide and water vapour. My average surface temperature is 480 degrees C. I do not have any satellites or moons orbiting around me. My day is 243 Earth days long and I turn in the opposite direction to Earth. What planet am I? Second question is, in ancient Greece, his name would Ares be, his shrine warriors all would come to see. And the third question is, no moons or satellite orbit around me, but I am not the first planet in question. So, uh, the second one is easy, that is Mars. Mars fourth or second? Do you know, I can never remember the order of the planets. Mercury, Mars, Earth, Venus, Neptune, Jupiter, Neptune, Uranus, Pluto, Saturn, Pluto. I think that... So, Mercury is the closest planet to the Sun doesn't have any moons. Average surface temperature is 480 degrees C. Now I have a feeling that it's not Mercury. It's got to be one of the inner planets. Now is it? Venus has a runaway greenhouse effect. I remember that much, which could put the average surface temperature as high as 480. There's only 300 and 20 paragraphs. Earth is the third planet out, so we can discount three as a starter. So it's got to be one or two. So I think it goes, I think it's two, three, one. It is not two, three, one. Okay, I've already failed. Um, yes, I realized what I did. I said two, three, one. Mars being the fourth planet from the sun is the correct answer. And indeed, turning to 241 on my second attempt, it does indeed say if you've come from 196, then you have answered correctly. Type in the code and the hatch opens. Grabbing the crystal, you dash back for the door. Yes, yes, you did well, says Rob grudgingly. So crystals, one. Now it is time to choose another game. So skill was okay but I always like the idea of the mystery game so I'm going to try the first mystery game. Think you can tackle a mystery do you? says Rob. Follow me to the interrogation room on the security deck. Are we to be interrogated? you ask worriedly. Not you idiot snarls Rob acidly. You have to solve the mystery remember? Making a mental note to complain to the crystal maze programmers about this particular android you follow Rob 9000 through the myriad corridors of the Star Crystal. He leads you upward through the command decks of the ship and into a small room. Two androids are sitting behind a low metal table. They look almost human but are clearly not as advanced as Rob 9000. 
These are Series 1000 androids, relatively early models of artificial beings. Needless to say, I represent the peak of achievement for androids, says Rob. The early androids were programmed to speak the truth always and never to harm a human being. Unfortunately, one of these two robots malfunctioned. It murdered a human and now it never tells the truth. Your job is to find out which android killed its human supervisor by asking one of three questions. You may only interrogate one of the androids. If you identify the murderer, you win a time crystal. If you fail, the team member who asks the question will be imprisoned in this room, okay? Both androids look identical to you. However, one of them always tells the truth and is innocent. The other always lies and is guilty. Choose which team member is going to interview them. I think it'll be my all-rounder piebald oyster chucker, because I think I know the answer to this one, having seen the film Labyrinth. Do we want to question Android 1 or 2? Well, it doesn't matter, so we might as well go with Android 2. Android 2 turns its head to look at you with a quiet whir of electric motors. What will you say? So the options are, did you kill your supervisor? Did Android 1 kill the man? Or, and this is the one we're going to go for, if I was to ask Android 1 who killed the man, what would he say? Because if we're asking the liar, he will lie about the answer. And if we're asking the truth teller, he will tell you the false answer that the liar gives. Thus meaning that whatever answer is supplied, we should do the opposite. Android 1 would confess that he killed the human if you asked him. Android 2 tells you, that's all you can ask, says Rob. You must decide who you think is guilty now, or you can give up if you don't want to risk imprisonment. So uh, the Android 2 is the murderer. You accuse Android 2 of the murder. He hangs his head in defeat. Android 1 sits impassively. Well, 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 says Rob. I didn't expect you to get this one so easily. Was it a lucky guess? He hands you a time crystal, so we are on. Two games played, two crystals won. We're already doing better than about 99% of actual Crystal Maze contestants. What this doesn't have, which I consider to be an essential part of the Crystal Maze viewing experience, is every game starting with the team member staring in blank confusion at whatever the game is, and plaintively wailing, I don't understand, I don't know what to do, while the teammates shout over one another unhelpful ideas about what the game might be about. So we've done mystery, we've done a skill. Am I going to tackle a mental game? There's a bit of me that thinks I shouldn't, because they were always the hardest games in the Crystal Maze, but I feel we need to have a look at the whole thing, so I'm going to go for the second mental game. First, you choose a team member to undertake this game. I will choose Piebald Oyster Chucker again as the most expendable member of the team. Then Rob speaks. A mental test, eh? Right, listen to this then. Two asteroids are racing towards each other on a collision course, each travelling at 500 miles an hour. They start at 2,000 miles apart. An asteroid mining droid is flying continuously backwards and forwards from nose to nose between the two closing asteroids. The droid is travelling at 750 miles an hour. How far does the droid travel in miles before the asteroids collide and the droid is crushed? 
Use your watch and time yourself. You have one minute to come up with an answer. If within that time minute you think you have the answer, you can turn to the next paragraph. If you get the answer wrong, however, your teammate will be imprisoned. If a minute has passed and you haven't got an answer, you must give up. So I'm going to set a timer to see what I can do in 60 seconds. So um, they're both traveling at 500 miles an hour. Is it a kind of trick question? Is it going to actually transpire that the total distance traveled is a maximum of 2,000 miles? My time is up. Do I want to give an answer? Um, I've got to decide quickly, I guess. I'm going to take a chance on the answer. So, I can't answer 2,000, which was the answer I was going to give. Okay, well, a choice of 1,500, 750, and 1,000. Actually, it's actually relatively straightforward now I think about it, because it takes two hours for the asteroids to come together, and the droid is travelling at 750 miles an hour, so it will travel for two hours. You don't have to worry about anything else. It is, in fact, just how far does the droid travel in two hours, which is 1,500 miles. Literally, having the timer on made that so much more difficult to mentally get my head round, which is um, a really neat example of how adding an additional stressor to a basically pretty simple logic puzzle could really make things very challenging indeed. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty certain it's 1,500 miles. You are correct. The droid would have been flying for two hours, and that's how long the asteroids would have taken to reach each other. 750 miles per hour equals 1,500 miles. Easy, says Rob. He hands you a time crystal. We now have three crystals from three games. Doing genuinely pretty well. So final game. Well, let's do a physical game. And we'll do the first physical game. Rob9000 says, physical is it then? You'll enjoy this one. He begins to laugh. You are led to a door which Rob opens with a spoken command. The steel panel slides aside with a whir revealing a strange and foreboding vista. You are looking down into a huge cavernous chamber that falls away as far as you can see. It is empty, save for a number of glowing plates which seem to hang unattached, floating in space. There are sixteen of them, arranged in a four-by-four four square. At the far end, offset to the left, a seventeenth plate floats serenely. On it you can see a time crystal. The plates are about three or four feet apart, and each is covered in starry patterns, depicting various galactic walls. The first four plates are but a step away through the door. Each plate is held in place by an anti-gravity motor affixed to its underside. You'll have to cross the galactic grid to get to the final plate and the crystal. You have two minutes. Easy as pie, eh? Says Rob. Course, there is a slight problem, he adds smirking. Most of the plates have time distorters or other fiendish devices on them. Those plates will slow you up in various ways. There is one correct route, and only one along which you can travel without losing much time, and time is of the essence. You can leap over a plate if you want to take the risk. If you fall, the anti-grav trap will save you from instant death, but you will have to start at the beginning again, and you'll lose precious seconds. Good luck! So, I will send my strength specialist, Dropsy Bling Bling, to do this task. So, there is a diagram below. 17 squares are representations of the plates. You may begin by stepping across the portal onto one of the first four plates. So we've got a 4x4 four four grid with a crystal 
on a separate box which is attached to the top left hand corner of the grid from any of the starting squares there is a path which is only four squares long so i can't use that as any kind of clue um i think i just have to choose a grid reference and hope for the best so i will choose the second square in from the left on the four by four grid you reach the plate safely but you set off a time distorter your movements slow down much to your chagrin add 20 seconds to your time total so we've taken 20 seconds so far and if the total exceeds 120 seconds and i suspect we will be locked in okay so this opens up the next row of the grid and also three squares on the third row of the grid and the ones the squares next to the one we're on can be reached automatically by a single step whereas the other ones require a strength check to get to well i think a strength check is a reasonable thing to try time being of the essence so i'm going to try and jump over the second row of squares out of four and land on the leftmost of the third row which is coincidentally i think within jumping distance of the crystal itself so i've got to make a strength test but add one to the result i get snake eyes which means that i've made it to a new plate so i'm now on the leftmost plate of the third row ah diagrams absolutely uh, absolutely ideal for an audio format as soon as you step onto the plate, it begins to wobble and gyrate, forcing you to cling on or fall. Wrong one, bozo, shouts the android Rob, becoming increasingly confrontational. Add 20 seconds to your time. Time is now 40. Intriguingly, the diagram indicates that you can jump straight to the crystal from this location, but doesn't actually give a paragraph for you to turn to if you make that jump so uh yes we will go to the square that is next to the crystal and hope that that makes a useful place to stand a safe place add five seconds to your time total if the total exceeds 120 seconds then i think we're game over otherwise read on so we're at 45 seconds so uh we can go from here straight to the crystal i think we will do that you have made it to the time crystal, Rob mutters something under his breath. Picking the crystal up in your hand, you turn to survey your route back. Do not record the time crystal as yours yet, for you may not make it back in time. Add 10 seconds to your time total, 55. And see if your total exceeds 201, which it doesn't. Okay, there's a, an issue with this. The diagram indicates that you're supposed to try and make your way back across the grid. But the text actually indicates that so long as you add 10 seconds uh, without going over the limit, you can successfully complete the game. So, OK, fair enough. Um, we will go with what the text says rather than what the diagram says. Feels as though maybe the art was being done at the same time that the book was being written rather than after it was finished. So we've played a skill, we've played a mental, we've played a physical, we've played a mystery. So we have got four crystals, the maximum possible. We can go on 
to the next zone. You have now completed the futuristic zone and may release any imprisoned teammates in exchange for a time crystal per person. You then take the shuttle back to Earth and the rest of the crystal maze. From there you may visit any of the other zones. So um, we will go back in time to the industrial zone following the hint that Rob gave us. Rob takes you to the huge sprawling industrial complex. It consists of a vast collection of mighty cooling towers and intricate steel pipes, belching steam and noxious gases, connected by endless stairways, ramps and darkened corridors. Dirt and grime cling to the iron walls flecked with paint, and a constant clanging and hammering rings in your ears. In places, jets of steam or water spray forth seemingly at random. People dressed in protective clothing swarm like ants. Other areas are completely deserted. I'm kind of amazed that they've really gone to town on creating a genuine vision of industrial hell for this presumably light entertainment program. Um, they've really got above and beyond the program makers by trying to really capture the nightmarish excesses of the Industrial Revolution. You have to put on special respirators to cope with the polluted atmosphere, and Rob warns you not to touch anything, especially those things that look chemical in nature. After a while, he leads you into a relatively pleasant office above a deserted factory floor, on which dead machines are scattered, abandoned. It's a little quieter here, says Rob. I can actually hear myself think. Well, welcome to the industrial zone. Nice, isn't it? He comments wryly. And there is a picture of the industrial zone, and it is indeed a vision of hell. Just a smoggy mess with giant towers and ant-like humans moving amongst them. The ant-like humans presumably being basically film extras rather than actual industrial personnel yeah it's a dark and sinister zone in every possible way strange tone you are allowed to play only four games in the industrial zone select from the choices below and mark them off as you do so in order to not attempt any game twice after each game you'll be sent back to this paragraph to choose another if you end up with all four of your teammates imprisoned you have lost the whole Crystal Maze game and won't get to the Crystal Dome. Once you've attempted four games in the Industrial Zone, you will be given the opportunity to release any imprisoned colleagues at the cost of one time crystal per person. So there's a slightly shorter list of games here. So we've got a skill, mental, physical, mystery, and we've got three mental games. So we're going to have to play at least one mental game. So I guess we'll start with that. We'll get it out of the way and we will go to mental game three. Rob leads you through the sprawling maze of the industrial zone to a small office. Inside is a computer humming faintly. On the screen are two lines. So the first line is QTT space MPP space ILL space EHH. And the second line says 131 space 19 space equals dot dot dot. You have to work out the sequence and type in the right number to win the crystal, says Rob. Difficult one, this. Okay, my attention is immediately drawn to the repeated letters. Because it's Q-T-T-M-P-P-I-L-L-E-H-H. We get five goes, which is at least pretty generous. So it obviously is genuinely quite hard. 
it is some considerable time later and I do mean a considerable time later, like a good half hour later. And with the help of my husband, I have arrived at the answer. So I'd got some of the way there on my own. So the sequence of letters works like this. QTT is the 17th and the 20th letters of the alphabet. MPP is the 13th and the 16th letters of the alphabet. ILL 912, EHH is 588, and the second and third letters are three more than the first letter, and the first letter of each sequence is four less than the letter previously. So it goes 17, 13, 9, 5, and then if you extend that further, you get the letter a, which is four less than E, and two letter Ds, which are three more than A. You have two numbers below that, 131 and 19, and ADD simply says add, and you have to add 131 to 19 to get 150, and that is the solution of the puzzle. So thank you very much to my beloved husband, for collapsing that particular waveform and we have got another crystal and I'm very tired. Well done, says Rob. Even with my enhanced neuron network artificial intelligence brain, that took me a few seconds to work out. You win, fair and square. He hands you a time crystal. Note down you have it and turn to 180. I am very tired now. I really don't want to do any more mental games because I will be at this forever. So let's do a skill game. This game will test your skill in trading, says Rob. He leads you to a room with a computer screen. All trading is done via the computer. Transactions are made between the futuristic zone and the other zones. You buy goods from the future and trade them for goods from the other zones. Then you call up the futuristic zone again and see what price you get for the goods from the past. The idea of the game is to amass 1,000 credits. However, you must do this by means of only three trades. Also, you start the game with an investment fund of 100 credits. You will specialise in three trades and you cannot trade in a commodity more than once either. So let's see if we've got any potential captains of industry. You will need to keep a record of how many transactions you have made, how much money you have at the moment and which commodities you have bought. You cannot be imprisoned in the trading game, but you can make a loss. Okay, so we need to work out what we're going to buy and who we're going to trade it with. So we've got a choice of high-grade advanced machine tools, genetically engineered super horses, synthetic all-weather clothes, neural network, artificial intelligence, computer circuits, advanced metallurgy information technology, and genetically modified super wheat grain. So I guess I'm going to go for the horses and try and trade them to the medieval zone. And that cost me 75 credits, so I've got 25 remaining. So I'm going to trade those with the medieval zone because I know that medieval people love horses. I could potentially, I guess, if I was being super, super clever, trade with the Aztec zone because I know that the Aztecs didn't have horses and guess they might want them. Although, to be fair, 
the Aztecs didn't have horses, but also their environment was wildly unsuitable for horses anyway. So I'm going to stick with my original thought and say the medieval zone. Now the medievalists are into horses. The knights are very keen on your super steeds as battle chargers. Choose one of the following offers as your trade in return. So we can have animal furs, illuminated manuscripts, medieval weapons and armour. So I guess I'll take the medieval weapons and armour and trade them to the Aztecs because that might give them the upper hand against the conquistadors perhaps. Oh sorry, I've got to go and trade with the futuristic zone. So illuminated books are valuable by antiquities and worth a fortune. 500 credits. The armour and weapons also have antique value. 400 credits. The furs are worthless. Uh, it's considered offensive to wear furs as most animal species are close to extinction in the 21st century. How true that is. However, some biological research institute will give you a small amount for them. So uh, I get 400 credits, taking my total up to 425. So I'm now going to trade some all-weather clothes. And I'm going to trade the all-weather clothes to the Aztecs. Air-conditioned clothes goes down a treat in the Aztec zone and you're given a collection of Aztec art. And the Aztec art is worth 350. So that takes me up to 750 credits. And I guess I'll take some genetically modified super wheat grain and I'll trade that to the medieval zone. And they offer me bales of silk and that gets me 450 credits taking my total to over a thousand so i've won the game and rob will give you a time crystal seven time crystals so far and i will follow that with a physical game hmm physical well follow me then says rob he leads you across a vast automated assembly line where android parts are being made the noise is deafening and the work ceaseless. You come to a quieter area and are led into a room made entirely of steel. Walls, floor, ceiling and door. A large magnet about a foot in diameter is stuck to the far wall. On a table nearby rests several implements. A hammer, a chisel, a pair of large pliers and a blowtorch. The idea is to remove the magnet, says Rob. Behind it is a little cubbyhole in which a time crystal is to be found. You have one minute to do this. Don't have to tell you that it's a very strong magnet. Good luck. So we need to keep track of our time as well. So we've got choice of approaches. Brute strength, hammer, chisel, pliers or blowtorch. I feel like the chisel might be good at getting in so we can get some leverage. So let's try the chisel. Uh, 20 seconds to your time total. Taking the chisel, you manage to work it a few millimetres underneath the magnet. However, it's not enough to get good leverage, and the tip of the chisel snaps off, sticking to the magnet. You can give up, or you can try and remove the magnet by brute strength, hammer, pliers, blowtorch. I mean, the blowtorch sounds fun. Let's give the blowtorch a go. The blowtorch gives off a hot blast of flame as you ignite it. You play it over the magnet. Within moments, it has been heated to the Curie point. As everybody knows... Magnets, when hot enough, lose most of their power of attraction, and the magnet falls to the floor with a resounding clang. It reveals a small alcove in which glitters a time crystal. Good stuff, says Rob, as you take the crystal. You may also keep the blowtorch if you wish. 
given that the blowtorch is likely to be more valuable than whatever prize we end up with. I think we'll hang on to that. So we're now up to seven, seven crystals. And for the last one, we will do a mystery game. Mystery time, folks, announces Rob. He leads you to a doorway and shows your chosen teammate into a small office. And it'll be playballed oyster chucker, as always. Slouched in a seat is a dummy made up to represent a dead body with a knife in its chest. The office is decked out in an old-fashioned style, with a bookcase, a television, a telescope, various maps on the walls, and cabinets and cupboards on all sides. Rob says, This game is basically a reconstruction of the very early mystery games they used to have in the first Crystal Maze series, right back in the late 20th century. This office is a mock-up of the headquarters of a 20th century industrial company, involved in the trade of metals, gold, copper, iron and so on. Your job is to find and follow the clues which will lead you to two numbers. Add them together and that will give you the combination to open the office safe, in which is hidden a crystal. You have two minutes to complete this task. Overstretching your time means good old imprisonment. You will need to keep a record of your time total in seconds for the game. To get you going, Rob points to a piece of paper held in the dummy's hand. That is your first clue. The paper has written on it the phrase, See you, Jimmy, Rob says. Remember, folks, it's elementary and I won't say any more. So, uh, a first clue points us towards Scotland because Scottish people love to say, See you, Jimmy. I am reliably informed. So we're going to have a look at the map of Scotland on the wall. Add 20 seconds to your total time. You examine the map and even remove it from the wall to look behind it. However, you find no clues. You may now investigate the television, the stack of copper sheeting, the large silver-plated telescope, or give up. Uh, well, he said it's elementary, so let's have a look at the stack of copper sheeting. Add 20 seconds to your time total. So we're up to 40. You sort through the copper sheets. At the bottom, you find another note. It says, Agatha Christie would have no trouble with this one. When you look at the Orient Express timetable, the metal shells holding several books, the silver cigarette case. Uh, I guess we'll look at the Orient Express timetable. 20 seconds added. Okay, we're up to 60. The timetable is a red herring. When you look at the book on the shelves, the silver cigarette case. Or will you give up and leave the room? Let's look at the silver cigarette case. Now, 20 seconds to your time total. So we're getting short of the old time here. You flip open the cigarette case. Inside is a key labelled store cupboard. Rob points out the cupboard on the far wall and you race over to it. Key turns easily and you open the door. Inside you see neatly stacked ingots of various metals. Copper, tin, platinum, gold, silver and iron. Oddly enough, you also find a record album, Antique Now. It is by an old 20th century band going by the unusual name of Tapau. The ingots! Examine the ingots, shrieks Rob. He's actually being helpful for once. So I'm going to look up to Powell's discography to see if there's a clue in there. Okay, so the albums are Bridge of Spies, Rage, The Promise, Red, and Pleasure and Pain. And the last two of those actually came out after this was written. So let's have a little look at their singles no help there let's have a look at the copper ingots and follow that clue add five seconds to your time total so 85 
Underneath the copper ingots, there is nothing. You don't think we'd use copper twice, do you? Says Rob, auspiciously. So uh, we'll try silver, because there was a silver telescope. I had 20 seconds to your time. I think this is going to be impossible to win from this position. You find nothing. Really, you've already had the silver clue. Please don't waste my time, says Rob caustically. So I think we'll have to admit defeat. And I've been recording for an hour and 20 minutes. That's not including the best part of half an hour I spent fruitlessly trying to deal with that letter and number number puzzle. So I think I'm going to stop the recording here. I think we've had a nice flavorful trip through the crystal maze. I've just noticed actually the cover's got a kind of shiny embossed foil crystal on the front, which is rather nice. So I think we will pause the recording there and I will continue playing off mic and then I'll let you know what I reckon about the Crystal Maze game book. I'll be back with some closing thoughts in just a few seconds. Tatty bye. I have completed a playthrough of The Crystal Maze and with a few reservations I wound up really liking it. I'm going to get the issues out of the way first because I want to really focus on why I think this is a surprisingly good time for a licensed tie-in book and I want to end on a positive note. The biggest issue is that there's some quite poor proofreading gone into this book. This is something that tends to bedevil adventure game books and I think it stems from copy editors not being familiar with the genre and the most common mistakes you need to look out for. There's a couple of sections that point in the wrong direction and some of the diagrams don't quite work for the text that accompanies them. I get the distinct impression that the editor read the book but didn't play the book and that's always a recipe for potential disaster especially when you're dealing with something quite complicated considering the small word count. It's not enough to ruin the book thankfully but it does make things a little less smooth than I would like. There's elements of the design that helpfully mitigate the damage which I'll talk about in a bit but proofreading game books is hard and requires a degree of specialist insight and I just don't think many publishers had easy access to those skills. Perhaps the weirdest effect this generates comes at the end of the book when you find out how you did. You take the number of crystals you obtained and multiply that by the number of team members you have available and then compare the resulting score to a table, which indicates the kind of prize you get for your efforts. Now the table is great. It's a science fiction riff on the low quality prizes that the game show itself offered. Uh, in my playthrough, I wound up with 10 crystals and 3 members left, which gave me 30 points, which is only enough for the second tier of prizes, which is going skydiving on Venus with an encounter suit provided. Uh, the lowest tier is going skydiving on Venus without an encounter suit. Interestingly, if I'd opted to spend a crystal to rescue my final team member, then I'd have wound up with 36 points, which would have pushed me up to tier 4 in the prize rankings and got me a parachute trip to Venus complete with the encounter suit and also subsequent retrieval from the surface by the Space Navy. I mean, it's a great bit of tongue-in-cheek silliness. Where things get a bit weird is that if you get four crystals from each zone, that gives you a maximum of 16 crystals. Multiply 16 by 4 gives you a 64, which is enough to get the second best prize available. To get the best prize you need not 16, not 17, but 18 crystals, which means that there's two additional secret crystals that you can find 
on top of the 16 that are explicitly available. Now I found one of them, but I cannot for the life of me find the second. And given the uneven editing, it does raise the question of whether or not it's actually there or whether they ran out of space and forgot to adjust the final section. I could be completely wrong on this, but one of the things that poor quality editing does is it just reduces your confidence in how the rest of the game book functions. This ties into the other big issue, which is that the book feels very cramped. It's clear the authors were struggling to fit the book into the word count allotted, and that means that the quality of the areas and the games within them varies considerably. I think overall they did a pretty good job with the space they had, but even another 20 paragraphs would probably have given the game book a bit of space to breathe and really sell the surreal world that the authors have constructed. Now this is actually something of a backhanded criticism because what I'm really saying is that I wanted more and that's more praise than censure really. That said, it does feel somewhat underwritten at points and there's frustrating hints that it didn't have to be like this. There's a few of the games that would definitely have benefited from a bit more space and there's some fascinating structural stuff in the Aztec zone that it would have been nice to see applied elsewhere in the book, but we will come to that. Those are the key criticisms. Everything else is more or less qualified praise. So let's start with the high-level stuff. I really like the idea of framing this as a science fiction version of the popular game show, not least because that's how the TV show itself slyly hinted it was presenting itself. While the show didn't hide the fact that the contestants were running around an aircraft hangar in Essex, the hosts were more like NPCs in a role-playing game than conventional game show hosts, each contributing to the illusion that the maze was, in a strange way, a real and self-contained reality. That curious dance around the notion of what constitutes reality in the artificial world of television is part of what makes the show feel so different and fresh. It therefore made absolute sense for the writers to lean into the fantastic qualities of the show and produces something that reflects the imaginary reality rather than being in a poorly heated studio. I think the strange world that Morris and Thompson have created feels exactly like you might expect a futuristic version of the Crystal Maze with an unlimited budget to feel. The zones are nicely realised within the tight word count, and I very much like the fact that each zone has a full-page illustration to accompany it. There's only four full-page illustrations in the whole book, and they've very cleverly gone, we need one illustration to sell each of the zones. The artwork is very much in the adequate bracket, but the industrial zone in particular is good, a smog-drenched vision of hell that seems like a demented place to make people do a series of silly games. I would like to have seen the zones fleshed out a bit more, but space considerations made that impossible, I suspect. So they chose to focus on the game side of it, and I think that's actually a perfectly reasonable decision to make. And the design is extremely streamlined, with almost no wasted sections. This isn't one of those books where you'll be bouncing from section to section before being grudgingly allowed to make a choice. The format lends itself well to a focused design, with each zone being a hub, with games radiating out from it, and players being routed back to the hub at the end of the game. 
Sensibly, there's also a few more narrative elements to break up the flow of the book and prevent monotony setting in. There's a quarterstaff fight with a Robin Hood droid before you arrive at the medieval zone, which can't be skipped, but provides what you might call a more traditional game book encounter. Um, the Aztec zone has only four games, but also feels more like something from a traditional role-playing experience with the player being given the option to investigate points of interest rather than being given a simple list of games on offer. In an ideal world, I think you'd build those kind of experiences into every zone and perhaps use them to tell a subtle story in the background of the main action that would turn the book into something with a narrative element to it. But in order to do that, you'd have to make a book of genuinely epic length. And I'd rather have a little of a good thing than none at all. So those coy twists here and there, actors, pleasant seasoning on an otherwise repetitive structure. But I don't want to detract from the elegance of the structure. One of the things I think is really important in any game design is to have some kind of guiding principle which governs all other decisions you make. A lot of the games I design might be called high concept games. I start with a key experience I want to try and capture and I work from that to the mechanics and structures which will serve that goal. When I wrote Percentage Killbot, I started from a key idea that I wanted to simulate cybernetic soldiers coming back from an alien war physically and psychologically changed by the horrors of a science fiction conflict. That naturally led to a simple game structure which split the game into two halves, one half of the game being on the front lines and the other one back at home on leave. I then stole or borrowed the core mechanic from Lasers and Feelings since it's a natural fit with binary experiences like having the front lines and home leave. But I changed it from a D6 to a D100 mechanic because Percentile Dice gave it an amusing veneer of crunchiness and that seemed to fit better with the idea of a character slowly becoming more machine than man. It had a kind of sciency vibe to it. There's no particular reason that a D100 should have a more sciency vibe than a D6, but for me, it definitely does. So you can see how like the decisions flowed from the core premise into the mechanics. And you can actually do the reverse. You can start with the mechanics and build up from there. One of the games I'm currently playing around with starts from the idea of having a deck of playing cards as both the means of resolving events in the game world, but also being the character sheet, because I really like the idea of representing a character with a physical object. That core mechanical premise has then led me to play around with what other mechanics I could potentially build on top of it, and that pushed me towards simulating certain kinds of reality, in this case probably a post-apocalyptic setting. All of which is to say that there's more to game design than simply coming up with mechanics and settings. It's important to marry those mechanics to the settings which match them. It's one reason why I was never a huge fan of role-playing games that were built on the D20 open game license. Dungeons & Dragons is a decent system, question mark, for a moderately crunchy fantasy resource management game, but if you're trying to apply it to other things, it's often a much less good fit. It doesn't, for example, feel like a 
particularly good fit for a superhero game and it doesn't feel a particularly good fit for what you might call a two-fisted pulp adventure game. There's nothing wrong with using proven mechanics if they do actually fit as seen by me stealing from lasers and feelings. It's not necessary to reinvent the wheel with every game or game book, but you don't want to find yourself nailing wheels to a boat. One thing I loved about the World of Darkness system used in games like Vampire the Masquerade was that it did a very good job of simulating characters who are really good at stuff. It was great for generating a range of outcomes for people who were basically going to succeed. It was just a question of how well they did. Of course, that system broke down in combat where actually all you really want to know is who wins at the end of the fight and you don't want to roll 200 dice to get there which was a very real possibility. In game books you often want to deal with binary outcomes as much as possible because if you bake a multitude of possible outcomes into your systems that eats physical design space every time you use that system. You want to have binary outcomes as your starting point and then bolt on a way of coming up with other outcomes as and when you want to expand that. So for instance in fighting fantasy the luck system is binary but should you fail a luck test there's nothing stopping you from asking the player to then roll a dice with a one to three being a terrible outcome and a four to six merely being a bad one. What I really admire about this book is how clearly the authors have grasped how to go about simulating the experience of the Crystal Maze. The structure of the game show maps very well onto a gamebook space, and while the approach the authors have taken might seem obvious, it certainly wasn't the only approach available. You could have done a more traditional gamebook design where you're led through the zones in a fixed order, being asked whether you wanted to do different games as you went along. The hub structure simplifies things and allowing you to do the zones and the games in any order creates a sense of agency that perfectly marries the concept to the execution and that's always impressive to me. I like that the order you do the zones in actually matters a little bit. That helps elevate the design and make your choices consequential and does provide just a little bit of narrative within a book that's otherwise absent a conventional plot. And taking this very parsimonious approach means that they're free to devote the bulk of the paragraph counts to the games themselves, which are, after all, fundamentally the main attraction here. The games themselves are a mixed bag, and I don't mean that as criticism. There's a lot of them. There's eight games in three zones and four in the Aztec zone. That's 28 games across 320 paragraphs and that's genuinely impressive work and obviously some games are going to work better than others in a gamebook format but you want a range of different styles and difficulties so that people can pick their favorites on subsequent playthroughs though I don't think that this is a book that particularly rewards repeat play since it captures the experience of being on a science fiction game show so well that I found after the first playthrough even though I didn't get the best ending, I felt like I had very much done the book. There's a lot of imagination on display in the puzzles. I found most of them were doable with a bit of thought, but some were very tricky to accomplish within the time limit. 
The use of a stopwatch to simulate the time pressure of trying to complete a task in an appropriate time limit, which is something key to the game show, is inspired, but I'm grateful that they used a light touch and didn't lean on it too hard. It's something that's a fun twist once or twice, but it's also quite stressful, so it was a relief to have other games which were based on more conventional decision trees, where each decision added an arbitrary number of seconds to an imaginary timer. It also does a really good job of letting you bail on games if you're not confident you're going to win, which is entirely appropriate, and helps make the game feel a little bit less intimidating, particularly once you've got one player locked in. There is a real sense that things could spiral terribly out of control, so making sure that you've frequently got a way out of a game is a good way of balancing that. Inevitably, there's some things that simulate well in a game book and some things which don't. Being given logic puzzles to do works absolutely fine and eats a very small number of paragraphs. Some of the other puzzles do feel a bit cumbersome in this format. There's one that involves moving items from one basket to another that involves a lot of paragraphs and a lot of diagrams and I think would be much easier to solve in real life where you could actually just experiment with real things. There's also a few errors in the diagrams that make things a bit harder. In one case, there's a list of 16 diagrams, and the second one makes absolutely no sense to me in the context of the game. Happily, this one just asks you whether you managed to solve it, so I think the authors were probably aware that there was an issue with this and decided to provide you with a way of cheating if you couldn't make head nor tail of the slightly misleading diagram. You could still solve the logic puzzle with the information just provided in the text, but it is one where the diagram is acting as a hindrance rather than a help. I did like the mystery games, which were designed more like classic game book encounters. Sometimes it's just nice to make choices and turn pages rather than trying to work out chess problems. Although your team are defined by three stats each, it's fair to say that the intelligence stat is pretty underused. I think the smarter move would have been to dispense with the stats entirely and give each team member a keyword that you could then tie to certain dice rolls and then define those random roll parameters on a case-by-case basis. If you defined the people by personality traits like plucky or careful, that would make them feel more like a character and it would create a bit more actual thought when you try and decide who should do a game. As it is, the decision of who to send in is usually fairly straightforward. At least the random roles are generally reasonably forgiving. There's not too many occasions when one failed roll will lead to an immediate lock-in. And I would say the difficulty level in general feels well judged. I never felt like I was in real danger of losing my whole team, but at the same time, that did always feel like a threat in the background. I love to see a book that delivers on its specific fantasy as well as The Crystal Maze does. It feels like a well-executed attempt to do something that captures the idea of a game show within the constraints of a game book experience. A long while ago, we covered a game book based on children's TV fantasy game show Nightmare, which was also written by Dave Morris. And while that book was interesting, this feels like a more successful attempt to capture the vibe of the source material. The Nightmare game book had a couple of interesting puzzles, but 
it never really captured the essence of the show, whereas this really does. And I like how far it pushes in a more fantastical direction. I wasn't expecting to enjoy this quite as much as I did, but despite a few niggling issues with the production of the book, I genuinely had a tremendously good time playing this one. I don't think it's particularly expensive. I can't remember exactly how much I paid for it, but I think it's easily available second-hand for not very much, and I would certainly recommend it as an amusing way to spend time. Probably a great one to play with any children you might have as well. That's all for this episode. Next time we'll be safely back in the familiar arms of the Fighting Fantasy series as we explore Portal of Evil. If you would like to get in touch with me in the meantime, you can do so by email at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. Do feel free to leave a review or a rating if you've been enjoying the show, or maybe tell someone you think might enjoy my blitherings. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.